You're about to listen to an all-new issue of Geek in the City Radio, which comes to you free every single week over on geekinthecity.com. If you enjoy helping us keep this show free, and I know you do, pop on over to patreon.com forward slash geekinthecity, where we have all kinds of levels that get you some fantastic awards and benefits. But if you can't help us out there, just please share this show over on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. And as always, our opening and closing theme brought to you by nerd rock group Megathruster. And now, let's get on with an all-new issue of Geek in the City Radio. One, two, three, four! It's been a long, long week. Why don't you spend some time with geeks? So many issues today into which we must delve. Talk about the stuff that makes you scream and shout. Hit the red alert, we're going more factor 12. Thanks for pressing play. Now we're gonna save the day. Alright! Why, hello, and welcome to issue. 558 of Geek of the City Radio. I am one of your hosts, Aaron Duran. I'm one of your other hosts, Finarita. And I'm your other host, Cable Hashitani. And this week we are joined by our special guest, uh, Joe Illich. How's it going, sir? All right. How are y'all doing today? Good. I want to make sure I'm saying your last name correctly. I am notorious for being bad at names. No, this time you nailed it, and I appreciate it. Um, I've gone through life where it has been mispronounced, misspelled, mangled, choked. So the fact that you got it right, I really appreciate it. I used to have to tell people it's like village, but without the V. Phonetically, don't spell it that way. So. <laughs> That's a good way to remember. And do you prefer Joe or Joseph? You know, it's tricky because no matter how I introduce myself to people, within two weeks they decide what they want to call me anyway. <laughs> so I just, I just, you know, I just tell people, you know, you just call me what you want. It all works out. So all right. Joseph for Joe works. Thank all you right. for asking. Sure, that works. Um, so yeah, before we uh, before we officially went live, we were just talking about um, that uh, we're coming up on what normally would be Comic Con season, but that's not happening. But it hasn't. Yeah. And and the and the real downside to that is that. Um, writers and artists and editors no longer have the excuse of taking kind of two weeks away from quote work. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, the, the editors know that leading up to San Diego Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con and the aftermath of San Diego Comic-Con don't really expect much, right? Because the San Diego Comic-Con experience is such that you become totally immersed in it. And I know the way it is for me, when I get back into the real world, then I'm checking the New York Times and Washington Post and CNN again. I'm like, what happened? What, what, what? You know what I mean? <laughs> What's going on? Because total- you have been in San Diego Comic-Con land, which not only involves the conventions, but it involves the after parties, Right. Right. In which you don't get to bed until four o'clock in the morning, and then you have to get up at seven, have breakfast, get to your table. So it's just this long experience. Oh. So the absence of it, 
is pretty jarring for a lot of people. My Facebook feed is full of a bunch of people showing their memories from last year at San Diego Comic-Con <laughs> or five years ago at San Diego Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. So it's really, it's really different for us, you know? And so we're just trying to recalibrate ourselves. Right. Um, and I just saw that today San Diego put out a real sweet, you know, like minute and a half video, you know, basically just showing images from cons past, you know, creators, cosplayers. I mean, the whole, the whole gamut of what happens in, in San Diego. And it's just like, you know, uh, you know, don't, don't be down. Like, you, you know, the con still lives in your heart. We'll, we'll meet again, you know, keep building those memories, keep building those relationships. And it was, le- it was legitimately sweet. It didn't feel like a, don't forget us. We'll be back. It was a, yeah, it's kind of bittersweet, but we're all still in this together kind of vibe. So that was nice to see. Nice. And I think the virtual San Diego Comic-Con, I think the way that's being set up with so many panels, that's very encouraging, right? Right. That we're still going to experience the knowledge and the people and the stories Mm -hmm. just in a different format. So I'm looking forward to what that's going to be like. I'm on three panels and I'm looking forward to watching a bunch of other panels quite frankly so let's see how this how this works you know this may be the beginning of a different way of doing it right yeah and I, then it becomes an, an alternative and not an aberration right i i do wonder if some of the some of the bigger companies you know like maybe if they look at the numbers in terms of you know what they get back from attend you know from from their customers or their fans and then they realize that you know what the like the spike in whatever that comes from Comic Con or the excitement or the or the fans promoting isn't all that different. So why are we dropping hundreds of thousands of dollars on some of these massive installments if we get the same interaction? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a risk, right? Um, and let's see. But you know, ultimately, there are some things that you cannot quantify where you can't easily put them in metrics. And part of that is the experience of totally eliminating the distance between a fan or a buyer and the people whose work they admire. Mm -hmm. The value of that, the conversations that come from that, you can't measure that with an algorithm or a spreadsheet. So I would hope that even if they come to these conclusions, they understand the value of the convention as an integral part of this industry instead of just an accessory. That, yeah, no, that does make sense. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of funny. We're, uh, uh, Greg Ruck is one of our, our friends and he, he pops on the show regularly. Uh, he says, hi, by the way. <laughs> oh well please tell greg i said hi back he and i yeah. have known each other since the batman days um i am so happy for him and leandro and um the editor and everyone involved with the old guard yeah you know the success that's coming from that i'm sure is very gratifying for all of them and it's good to be rewarded for doing the work because you wanted to do good work, right. not yeah. doing the work to get that. That mm-hmm. is your reward. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, wishing them all the best. They're all great people and enjoy it. And I got to find time to watch the old guard. It's pretty great. It's pretty damn great. Um, but I was joking, uh, someone joked with him and said like, well, no Comic-Con this year. So you might, you know, might be a little more relaxing. And he was like, I think I'm on more panels virtually than I've ever been on. <laughs> yes. You know, <laughs> that's, that's truth, man. I yeah. did three in two days. Right. Ooh. So it's just like, yes, because it's mobile, people feel like, oh, well, you can just pack more in. And it's like each of those actually takes some work. Right. <laughs> you know, like this whole thing that we're doing, like this takes work. Right. <laughs> so, you we know, we were just so- talking about the, the format of uh, video conferencing and video panels and interviews being a new format that people are still getting adjusted to before. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. You know, so yeah, it is, it is kind of wild. You think it's relaxing, but it's, it's a different kind of exhaust. It, yeah. It's still, it's still work, you know, one way yeah, or another, yeah. it's, it's still the job. Right. You have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it. I feel like a, I feel like I've also been a very horrible host so that I haven't given proper introductions to our audience as to what you actually do. <laughs> uh, you have not been horrible. It's, it's conversation. Yeah. So um, right now I am the executive editor for Heavy Metal, which is a great honor and a lot of fun. And I am also the main writer on a graphic novel called MPLS Sound, which is coming out from Humanoids in April of next year. Awesome. Very cool. And yeah, those are those are the two big things now. There are, there are a bunch of things that go with that. Um, you know, <laughs> husband, landlord, homeowner, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. But like in terms of the industry, those are the two things. And I would say all around positive social media guy. Like you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you know, it's just all about talking about the good stuff. Yeah, I, I will say that your feed, I mean, I'm sure you have times when you get down, you get frustrated, but almost all your posts are generally universally positive, even if you're talking about something that's a total shit show. You're like, let's, you know, let's find the, let's find the way, be, you know, let's learn and be better and let's do this. Yeah, thank you. You know, I feel like, I feel like there's so much toxicity anyway, it doesn't need help from me and let's... I don't know. Let's remind ourselves there's some good things going on that we can learn valuable lessons from one another and that we don't have to weaponize opinions. Yeah. Okay. We just have, we just have opinions. How about that? Right. Yeah. I like the phrasing of that. Thank you. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's what people are doing, man. They're like, I hate this. And they turn it into like a dagger and they start stabbing people with it. (laughs) And it's like, okay, if I didn't like that issue of X writers, Batman, that's okay. And I could possibly keep that to myself. Right. That, I mean, that's something I had to learn. It took me a few years to do it, especially as kind of a way back in the day in the early young internet days. Um, it was like if I saw something I didn't agree with or a movie I didn't like, I couldn't wait. I had to jump on board and tell them why they were wrong for liking it. And now I'm just like, just, you know what? I don't know why you like that book or that comic or that game, but you know what? It's not hurting anybody and you enjoy it. 
and so much of the world sucks. So enjoy your pleasure. <laughs> you know? Yep. I, th- I think that's the way to go. Man. I really yeah. Do. Um, I think everybody on the show has found their um, moment of discovering. It's like, Oh, as, as geeks and nerds, we've, we need to just let people like what they like. I mean, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It can be hard when part of what we do is to critique those works mm-hmm. to to find the balance between like, well, personally, I think this is garbage, but a lot of other people might think this is brilliant. Um, and just being, I don't know, eloquent about that. Yeah, I think you know, I think it's it's an it's an opportunity to examine it. Like when I wrote a column for Comic Book Resources. I really wanted to balance my fan perspective and a business perspective. And I found that a lot of people really responded to that. They would say, Oh, you know, I never thought about it from that angle, mm-hmm. you know, that and that's how mission, we like, right? ex- yes, yes. And, and that's how we expanded discussions, you know? So to me, the discussion is great and criticism, like thoughtful, analysis is really needed in our industry. You know, a lot of people, I think, take it for granted, like it's always going to be there. And we've seen by the disappearance of certain beloved websites and the fact that the ones that still exist basically have to exist by being owned by bigger companies. You know, ours is an industry in which we really need journalism and we really need thoughtful criticism so when you're talking about a digital publication like panel by panel um you know different things like those are really those are necessary yeah um and even the the sites like you said that do a lot of you know critical reviews you know they're owned by bigger companies that are just kind of wanting the clicks now um that's right i it's been some years now but when i used to write uh, reviews for Newsarama, I was always frustrated when the editor who run the column, who still does, he's a great guy. We, even he was like, I wish we could review more indie books, but you know what? The the review of the newest Batman or X Men, he's like, that's what gets people to come to the pages. So we get to do the indie books, but they were always buried, like way below the fold kind of reviews. Yeah, yeah, but now you're seeing a shift in that, right? You're seeing where the indie stars are becoming the superstars and they basically have their career set up where they'll do a Marvel or DC book or three, and then they'll do an image comic or three and (laughs) they manage to get their cross pollination. They get their audience to go where they go because the audience trusts that they will get something of quality. So I think now you're seeing more independent coverage, um, and that's great. Success yeah. stories in the independent scene are needed. Uh, it's sort of the uh, the indie Hollywood model. Uh, actors have their their franchises that they work on that are you know their action films, their big budget stuff that makes them a lot of money, and then they can sit on that money and do you know weird off, you know, artistic stuff like Swiss Army Man. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, It's funny that you say Hollywood because when I always think about it, I remember something that George Clooney said years ago in an interview when at the time he had a production company with Steven Soderbergh. And he said he would 
it would be one for you and one for me. So he'll do the Hollywood blockbuster film for them, and then he would do something like Solaris for himself. Right. Right. Like, and you need that kind of balance so that you can still look at yourself in the mirror, so that you can cleanse your palate, <laughs> things like that. I remember. The tricky like, thing is. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, oh is it the tricky thing? <laughs> I'll do mine because it's short. I said the tricky thing is like you have to have leverage in order to create those types of contracts. So first you have to make it big. It's sort of like a catch 22. Absolutely. Absolutely. But what's interesting in comics, right, is that you can make it big by having an independent career in which you slowly build an audience, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at someone like Jonathan Hickman, who was prolific before Marvel came knocking on his door because they were able to say, if this is his audience without us, if we put him on Fantastic Four, we amplify Fantastic Four and we bring his audience to it. And he became so influential that the design aesthetic of his books is the design aesthetic <laughs> of any project he's working on for Marvel. I mean, it, it literally is the co-defining feature of the whole X-Men relaunch, right? The infographs. Yep. That's what yeah. brought me back to X-Men. <clears throat> Infographs? It brought a lot of people back. Hickman's design and, and everything about how that was all all encompassing. There's just the story, the art, the infographics, the design, the, the um, all encompassing ideology around what he was wanted to tell with X Men. Yeah. Yeah, I, I will so say, I Denise, that. I know that Denise, you're not a big superhero person, but I think you might actually dig the, the Hickman relaunch of. Basically, the entire mutant line within Marvel. I, I mean, I do like the X Men conceptually. So, um, and you tell me there's infographics. I'm like ninety percent of the way sold. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's largely what the books is. There's a lot yeah. of infographics. And I think what's interesting is how he he manages to walk the line between superheroes and science fiction, right? So. I appreciate that because in my career, I've now made this transition from superheroes to heavy metal, which is science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, the publisher, David Irwin, and I always have this thing where it's like, he's not anti-superhero because he basically started franchise development at DC Comics, but we're always conscious of trying to not bring those conventions to these stories these stories that we're generating they operate by different rules right so it's kind of the difference between cc beck's captain marvel and alan moore's miracle man right one is clearly superhero one is clearly science fiction right so hickman manages to perfectly walk the line between those two genres. Which is kind of a staple of his work, I feel. Like, especially with Manhattan Projects and East of West as well. Definitely, definitely. He has an open invitation to heavy metal, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) We'll pass it on to him, because, you know, he'll need us to let him know, apparently, you know. (laughs) Please let him, please let him know. 
We are all fans of his I'll work. Te- I'll text him right now. <laughs> that's what's up. He just he's, I call him JH. We got a shorthand. There. <laughs> that, 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 that's that's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. Um, although you know, kind of talking about how talent brings in, you know, indie talent builds the audience, and they bring that audience to quote you know mainstream. So you know, Marvel or DC, and I always feel bad calling them just the mainstream, but I think the general public when they hear comics, they think Marvel and DC still. Yeah. Um, but something that we've talked about on the show a few times now, and we've never really come up with an answer, is that while it was far from perfect, it felt like before COVID shut the world down, there was at least an attempt to bring in some more diverse and lesser known voices from other industries into comics. Yes. Um, but now they're all kind of in you know, they're almost kind of all in siege mode now where it's like, okay, when we ramp back up, we need proven money makers, proven heavy hitters. Do you, do you see a concern that that's now going to kind of push back some of these risks they were going to take, that they will be more risk adverse again for a few years? I mean, that's an interesting question. So this is what I think. I think if that's their thinking, if that's any given company's thinking, I think it's very short-sighted. And the reason is because the world now is shifting, quite frankly, on a dime towards a desire for more diverse voices, right? And so what people are looking for, I think, are the best stories, right? I believe that who is writing the stories is becoming not as important as how good is that story. So here's an example. So you got a guy like Tom Taylor, right? Tom Taylor. Now by some metric, he may not sell what a Brian Michael Bendis sells, what a Jonathan Hickman sells. But you read his work in Deceased. That guy is an amazing writer. I first became aware of his work with Injustice. And if you get nothing else from Injustice, you get his love of Superman. Because you see the agony that it takes for him to break Superman. Yeah. Right? And so if I was the publisher of DC Comics, Tom Taylor would get a Superman book because his love of the character is so clear that you're going to get a Superman book that is celebratory of what that character means, right? That it's going to evoke what the first Christopher Reeve film did what we would have hoped any given Henry Cavill film did. (laughs) Um, Right? So I think that's what we're going to be looking for now. Who's going to give me the best stories? And it may not be the people that you expect. It may be the ones you don't. And so to me, that's the long game. The long game is not X person 
writing four titles so that we can project a certain kind of profit. It's who's going to give me the best Wonder Woman story? Who's going to give me the best Spider-Man story? Right? So that's where I'm hoping we go. Right. And we're going to find out. Um, I feel like certain companies are contracting, some are expanding. DC Comics is doing a great job by expanding their digital first program. Harley Quinn, um, I think it's black, red, and white. The deceased digital Mm -hmm. first comics. Um, That kind of stuff is great. Um, at Heavy Metal, we expanded with our virus creator-owned line. Heavy Metal is now going to be a monthly magazine, starting with issue 300. So it's really exciting that there are companies that are expanding and producing more content because we know people need more stories. So I think quality is going to be the barometer of the future and not celebrity. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. And I definitely, you know, hope that is the path that these companies, that these companies take for sure. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Um, I take it to mean that at the very least, when you look at the future of heavy metal, that is what you intend to do. Am I right? Yeah. You know, so we're, you know, we're really a team and that's one of the things I love about it. As executive editor, one of the things I really like doing is bringing new creators to heavy metal and issue 300 is really going to be a representation of that is you're going to see the, the classic, the legends, you're going to see Mobius, you're going to see Richard Corbin, but then you're going to see some new voices to the magazine, to the world. And that's because science fiction, fantasy and horror these genres are so important to our experience. That's not about celebrity. That's about who are the best storytellers. And unfortunately, at the very least with science fiction, up until recently, science fiction for the most part has not been totally exclusive. I mean, inclusive. It has not been. It's really been a white man's game. And now that's changed when you have someone like N.K. Jemison winning three Hugo Awards back to back when, you know, you have uh, Nettie Okorafor, right? Um, so many new voices are now coming to science fiction and planting their flags and with fantasy and with horror. And that's that's necessary. So... I mean, with heavy metal, it's our responsibility to reflect that. It's our responsibility to lead. And so we have to lead with an open door to imaginative creators and creators from different generations. That's great to hear. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. Thank you. And you're going to see it. You're going to see it. And I just pre-ordered it. I think you're going to like it. So. We think you're going to like it. Issue 300, I mean, we sent it off to the printer. All of us are so proud of it. I mean, it drops to August 19th. I, I just personally, I just can't wait for the world to see that, you know. And, and then, so, we'll see. 
And then from there on, it's going to be every month? Yep. It will be monthly, which will be great. We'll be putting out um, new mini-series, which will also be great. Uh, stories in a wider variety of formats. And again, that's, you know, that's looking at the market and mm-hmm. seeing the need for more stories. So I think when you look at how other companies that are dealing with growth are positioning themselves, they're exploring different formats more. I mean, I really have to applaud DC Comics embrace of the digital format. You know, the world changed to the point where more people were home, where the direct market was going through a transition. So the whole Wednesday warrior culture kind of came to a stop. And so with companies like DC Comics providing more digital stories, the same way that Heavy Metal with Virus, the creator online, putting out new weekly stories, offering them in different ways. You know, this this is exciting. This is not looking at the way things are now as if, okay, things are going to go back to normal. This is understanding that the world is in transformation to something ahead and being in step with that transformation. Right. And, and you could argue that the old normal wasn't working anyway. We were the all just pretending that it was, was working. The old normal was definitely flawed to be diplomatic. And <laughs> That's I very think, diplomatic. Right, right. Um, and I think history will show you that the best condition for any particular industry is not one of monopoly. Right? So for there to be growth, there have to be multiple players offering services in different ways with different variations. And we're heading in that direction now. We're heading in the direction where there are more options. And companies are exploring them. And the thing is, it's not going to prevent any of us from getting our stories. It's not going to prevent people from selling stories. So I think we have to change with the circumstances and let's see how we can do it together, right? Let's not, let's not rip each other apart. Let's not be angry at change. Let's right. see how we can how we can walk forward together. Right. And you mentioned a little bit about how the industry is never strengthened by monopolies. This could be just a quick little thought on this. What are your um, what's kind of your initial thoughts on on DC basically dropping Diamond? Um, Smart inevitable. Inevitable. <laughs> that was that was going to happen one day. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe for the future of their business, and their business is clearly on an accelerated growth trajectory. I do see how it was necessary. Right. And the thing about change that leads to growth is a lot of times in the beginning, people resent it. They fight it. They are angry about it. But over time, you see that it made sense. Right. So you're talking about a company that is owned by a company that is owned by a company. You're, you're <laughs> right. dealing with telecommunications giants. You're dealing with corporate giants. Right. It was truly inevitable that a company like that would not be interested in 
mm, an absence of options. Right. It's like we've, we've mentioned on the show a few times, we're still kind of amazed that Marvel is just diamond right now. Um, mainly being that yeah. it's like, well, Disney has their own distribution. Mm-hmm. They do their own book publications. I, 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 like you just said, I feel like it's inevitable one day Disney's going to think, why are we just you. using, why are we just using this one very outdated model? See, you see, and, and the thing is the publishing is so DNA sized on the corporate <laughs> flowchart that these right. things were happening and the, the shareholders and the bean counters didn't notice it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because it was all under R and D. But when you're in a pandemic and suddenly no one can get the stories. And right. that is the underpinning of your IP business. You can't ignore that anymore. Mm-hmm. You have to take you you have to engage it. That's right? it. So yeah. you have to. So interestingly enough, what this led us to understand is that the survival and growth of these ideas into TV, film, video games is very much dependent on the regular production and delivery of the comic. Just to maintain the, the, the IP out there? To maintain the IP, to maintain the awareness, right? right? Because let's talk about a scenario, right? Let's talk about a scenario where for one year, there are no Batman comics, right? 12 months, there's no Batman comics. In month 13, do you still care about a Batman comic or have you recalibrated yourself psychologically or emotionally to life without Batman? It's a very valid argument. I know I'm extremely guilty of walking away from something if it's not (laughs) there for me. This is right. This is what we're talking about. And now we're talking about world conditions that accelerate a mentality like that. Right. Right. In which, in which we are more inclined to not maintain attention to something. So the presence of that something then becomes even more crucial because it needs to be there. It needs to be there so that if we forget about it, our friends are telling us about it, that people on social media are talking about the latest storyline so that you say, Oh, you know what? I want back in. Or you know what? I don't want to be out of the conversation. Right? So so that's it. So these stories need to be out there regularly. Wow. I never kinda I just kinda thought of it more as like just maintaining you know, yeah, the the, the, the zeitgeist of the character, but you're right, it's it's more. It's got a more of a social connection with it also. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I'm trying to think. <laughs> the the answer is right so now I'm great. just admiring this this weird special effect you have going on. Oh yeah, the <laughs> thing is that the party you is gone. It's uh, very it's very future. I feel analog. Very <laughs> <laughs> analog. I can I can drop right it now. too. You can see my no 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 there it is. no. Well, no here's ah, my <laughs> Oh okay. Well, you see that's still dope. Yeah, it's a pretty good. That's office. a diff- that's a different type of action going on. 
Yeah. I think, I think what it is is Joe, we need to get you some, some artwork or maybe some minifigs in the background of your space. Yeah. There you go. So you know that you don't you're feel like you're right. Yeah. So you don't feel left out. Uh, I have a, Amici, you're absolutely right. Speaking <laughs> into a tribble or something here. Yeah. I was wondering why your shoulder was disappearing. By the way. Uh, yeah, it was this thing. I've got a, I got a fun question here in the chat. It's a little sure. bit of a hypothetical, but let's okay, say let's that uh, heavy metal was going to get picked up as a show uh, or some other like visual media on Netflix or Amazon or one of those other streaming services. Um, yeah. Who in your mind would, uh, would be the voice of the evil narrator and uh, what sort of music would you expect to see or would like to see on that soundtrack? Oh man, that is a tough one. So the CEO, Matthew Medney, really just has this bubble of like energy and enthusiasm. Like when I first met him, my spider sense did not go off with him. Like the BS meter did not go off, but he's just like a likable, enthusiastic guy. So I would think that he would be the voice. In terms of the music, honestly, I'm not qualified to answer that question. I am not in step with the most modern music. I'm a guy that still very much has a love affair with like Chris Cornell and sometimes <laughs> I'll rock some, I'll still rock some velvet revolver or something <laughs> like that. But okay. I, will, I will say this, but I will say this to you. I do feel like Prince is timeless. And if yes. we had Prince's funk and soul on a heavy metal animated film, I think that'd be pretty much set the tone right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm feeling it. I'm you, feeling could, it. you could also kind of suggest that uh, Janelle Moyen's last album was basically a small heavy metal short anyway. For that mm. entire album just That's was one giant, one. Con, you know, concept that way. Very interesting. Very <laughs> interesting. And yeah. I can see her doing some really good horror music because I think she's been in a couple, she's acted in some horror stuff. So. She's, yeah. got that, she's got that Antebellum movie coming out. Right? Antebellum is dropping. Yeah. But, you know, I think what's interesting about her is that she really, I feel like, exemplifies in a number of ways, like, the tone and aesthetic of Afrofuturism, right? People like her, people like Beyonce, this, just like the confidence and the understanding of the importance of black women throughout time, right? Black women are not a greatness that came up during the civil rights movement. They've been part of the fabric and the spine and the inspiration of our existence for as long back as we can remember. So that kind of confidence, that kind of, I think, understanding of your own value that's something that really comes through in her. Yeah, that she she definitely embodies that sort of concept, whether you love it or hate it. That black girl magic. There's there's an essence to it. The the confidence, the the uh, inspirational aspect to, mm-hmm. to her work. The 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 sexual fluidity, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's in it's um. It's a, how would I say this? It's a defiance of barriers. It's a defiance of easy categorization. And I feel like heavy metal represents that as well. If there's a barrier, then we're going to try and break it. Because barriers are bad things. Yeah. 
bridges Oof. are great. Bridges are great things. Well, there you go. Yeah. I'll contact Jonathan for the book. Denise, you can get a hold of Janelle. So, so, you, she's, she's in your uh, con- yeah. I guess that means right. people, you're you're on Netflix duty. Yeah. All right. All right. How is we that can, any we, different than any other day? Yeah. <laughs> oh, give us, give us, well. give us uh, issue three ten. We'll we'll have it all put together for you. You can kick back. <laughs> Listen, we will, if you can bring those people together, we will reserve a space right now. <laughs> you got to take us too. That's part of the deal, though. <laughs> no, dude. Listen, we don't leave anybody out. <laughs> the whole the whole crew comes. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Your your mention of Afrofuturism uh, kind of sparked something in in my head, uh, and I don't know if this is my perception of it is is incorrect, but there seems to be a better organization and galvanization of creators that are trying to tell those stories as opposed to um, other groups like within the Latinx community, they seem a bit more divided in the ability to tell stories. Uh, a lot of the indigenous uh, peoples, it, it, and I could be wrong. That's just a, like a, a, an observation that I make. Do you see there's something like that or what perhaps galvanized uh, one group into trying to kind of tell the stories together? That, you know, that's a good question. So, I mean, the honest, honestly, any given group, um, in our society, any given cultural group, there's um, there's fragmentations within within any of them, right? And so, part of what happens with that is that the stories are not from a monolithic perspective, right? So when you're talking about um, Latinx stories, um, stories from Indigenous peoples, you're talking about horror. You're talking about young adult stories. You're talking about mysticism. Um, with the thing about, I think, Afrofuturism, for me, it's kind of similar to um, manga and anime, where the idea of the large robot, the idea of the super cities, came out of the trauma of um, Hiroshima, right? Came out of the trauma of being decimated by nuclear technology. So the fiction responded to that to say, how could we survive that going forward? We could survive it if we had big robots. We could survive it if we had super cities. So I feel like Afrofuturism is in part building a future because we have been so traumatized, so fragmented by slavery, by colonization, that the response to that, the spiritual response, the projection into the future <clears throat> is the exact opposite, is one of greatness, is one um in which we realize that our story is not just earthbound, it's cosmological, it's spiritual, it's in blood, right? So I feel like every community has certain stories like that, right? And I think you're starting to see them more. I bet you're going to see a lot more of them in the next five years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know? and, 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 and we should. You know, it's, it's, it's long overdue, right? So that's where 
that's where we have to go as storytellers and facilitators of stories. It, yeah, what you said reminded me a few years ago, I got to uh, be on a, a panel with N.K. Jemison and uh, uh, Rebecca Roanhorse. And the, uh, a guest, uh, one of the uh, people in the audience asked, like, um, they said, you know, we don't see a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction from from black writers or indigenous writers and he, they weren't they were saying what are your thoughts on that and both of their answers were very similar they said because we're already here we're already living it we don't need to tell that story we know how that one ends exactly and i was and, I, and i'm sitting on the panel and i'm like well damn i'm not going to jump in on this at all they just nailed it. <laughs> well see that answer just says so much mm-hmm. right it's the thing that people outside of certain experiences take for granted. They take for granted that the default existence is one of inevitable prosperity, right? And when you have to live in constant fear, when you have to understand how to navigate in this nation, that's not the default, right? I mean, as an emotional default, you can wake up with gratitude and positivity, but as soon as you turn on the news or as soon as you step outside, you are confronted with the realities of America, mm-hmm. right? And that's not, and that's obviously not just a cultural issue. That's a that's that's an issue for anyone who is the other. Right. If you are not a white heterosexual male, then you are the other. At least in America. Right. Mm -hmm. That's that's what we're talking about right now. Obviously, globally, it's a much more nuanced and varied perspective. Sure. It's it's a very topical point to make, though, because I know that something that I've been seeing a lot lately is um, because of the protests happening all over the country and the movement to elevate black voices. Uh, One of the not counter arguments, but supplemental arguments I would say is don't just look at black culture and media and storytelling as a source of education. Like it shouldn't all be, you know, watching that documentary about the 13th amendment. It should also be about experiencing black culture and it's its own art um so i and i realize that that what that means is that any marginalized group has has two settings there's the there's the face that you put forward in order to to tell to stand up for yourself to represent yourself and to educate everyone who thinks you're other on what it is to be yourself so that hopefully someday they can understand and not treat you as other. But there's a whole nother, you know, the rest of the iceberg, which is the the art and the stories uh, that are just, they just are. It's your life. It's your, it's your art. It's who you are. And it's not there to educate. You are just enjoying your own culture and your own ethnicity, your histories. And it's important to, to be aware of both. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that is changing in Hollywood now slowly, but 
one of the reasons that Black Panther, the film, was embraced by so many people is because, I mean, as Black people, we're tired of our history being used as tragedy porn mm-hmm. for other people, right? And so a story that is more celebratory, right, and proves that the themes of our existence are interconnected. So when you're talking about something like Black Panther, you're talking about civic responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. You're talking about the idea that we cannot have so much and not share. That's unethical. That's immoral. And that's something that everybody can get. Everybody should be able to get civic responsibility, right? right? And that's one of the reasons why anyone could see that film and get it. Same thing with Batman Begins. I mean, the whole Christopher Nolan trilogy of Batman is about civic responsibility. Right. You know? So, yeah. Well, it makes you think when you, it makes you think when you watch Black Panther and you realize that maybe on paper he's the villain, but Killmonger makes some incredibly valid and correct points. You know? Beyond a shadow of a doubt. I mean, Killmonger (laughs) is in the same vein as um, Michael Fassbender and Sir Ian McKellen's Magneto. Mm-hmm. Right, where their positioning is born of pain, and it is emotionally valid. It's when you cross that particular line <laughs> that it's like, <laughs> sure. oh, it's 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 like, okay, bro, I was with you, right? Or or that line you've crossed, yes, emotionally, I may feel that way, but there's something in me that says that's wrong. Right, but they keep going, and part of the appeal of the villain is the fantasy to not be limited by society's norms and definitions, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that speaks to like the fantasy of the masked hero, right? right? Where it's like, as this individual, I can do anything that I couldn't do if I wasn't wearing this, right? If I didn't emulate or represent this, right? So, yeah, I mean, so these are things to, you know, like explore. It's pretty interesting. But, yeah, stories have to be celebratory of culture as well as reflective of the tragedy of peoples. And we should be, and we should be open to all of those. We should want to see all of them. And that seems like a really good spot for us to take a quick break and talk about our amazing sponsors. First up, uh, Bridge City Comics. You're going to hear us talk about a bunch of different books today on the show for obvious reasons. If any of them sound interesting, you need to pop on over to BridgeCityComics.com and place your order. Uh, they are open now to uh, limited hours to the public. Their days are Wednesday through Sunday, noon to 5 p.m. Uh, masks are required for entry, so, you know, don't... If you listen to the show, you should know by now. I mean, come on. Uh, but if you're still not, you know, quite comfortable with going in, I do believe they are stilling uh, curbside pickup and shipping. In fact, if you go to BridgeCityComics.com, you will see online order forms, both for last week and this week's new comics. So, um... Yeah, there you go. You have a chance there to get some books, and that's pretty fantastic. 
And when you do so, you know, thank them for sponsoring Geek in the City Radio. They have been there for us for a long time now, so let's be there for them. Next up, obviously, is Guardian Games. Uh, they have been the longest sponsor since before this was even a podcast, so, you know. Uh, they are also currently open, which we talked about before. They are open from noon to 7 p.m. daily. Uh, they are also still doing curbside service. Um, and, of course, if you're going in, masks are required. Um, there are all kinds of cool games that are coming out right now. I'm trying to think of uh, what they've got here right now. But, uh, yeah, trust me, they have really cool games. Uh, I actually spent a little bit of time in there a few days ago. Um, and picked up a new role-playing game and stuff that I'll probably never get to play, but I still fell in love with it anyway. Uh, you can also reserve books. Um, I don't talk about that enough, but if there's a role-playing game coming out that you're interested in, you can go down there and ask them to reserve you a copy, and then they'll give you a call when it comes in. Like the new, um, the, uh, the new D&D supplement that's coming out, I want to get that, and I ask them to hold me that, as well as the Klingon source book for the Star Trek role-playing game. So... They'll put your name down, and then they'll give you a call when the, the book comes in. So that's just one of the many services they offer uh, now and at all times. And you can find them at 345 Southeast Taylor Street in Portland, Oregon. And when you do, thank them for sponsoring Geek in the City Radio. And as always during these times, a huge shout-out to Reverend Nat for hooking us up with some equipment and for providing the refreshment of the apocalypse. <laughs> uh, and then before we head back to it, just a quick little shout out again to uh, Asylum over there on Southeast Hawthorne across from the Baghdad. They have limited shopping hours now and they are still getting in some cool stuff. So check out Facebook.com forward slash PDX Asylum and uh, show them some love if you're able to do it. And that about does it. So let's get back to the show. On that note, um, I think you've already mentioned like N.K. Jemison and a couple others, but uh, to tie it back into heavy metal, are there a couple uh, up-and-comer or even well-known uh, storytellers that you would like to to give more platform to? And, and well, I mean, there's so – well, thank you. There's so many. Um, so one of the people who's coming on board – she's on board with us – is Stephanie Phillips. Um, really amazing writer. She's done a lot of work for Aftershock. Um, she did, I think, The Butcher of Paris for Dark Horse. Mm. And she is the writer of our relaunch of Tarna from the 1981 animated film. So the Tarna series is going to be coming out late this year. And that's something that's very exciting for us. Tarna is the flagship character of Heavy Metal, Stephanie is one of the newer voices in comics, but her her approach to character and her approach to genre is really distinctive. So bringing that kind of distinctive perspective to like the heavy metal universe, as it were, is really exciting. That's really cool. Um, bringing people like Dylan Sprouse with a, a fantasy um, going back to the first king of Norway, King Harald. You know, when you think about, like, celebrity comics, so Dylan Sprouse um, is doing Sun Eater with us, which will be coming out very soon. You know, people's expectation of celebrity comics is, oh, this is a vehicle for someone to get, like, a movie deal, right? right? <laughs> so their expectations of the writing of the art 
the bar is low. <laughs> so with Sun Eater, we go in the opposite direction. The artwork is amazing. The story is compelling. And just because someone had some fame doesn't mean that they don't still have a good story to tell. Right? So it's really just about finding people who want to tell their personal stories in the genres that we roll in. Right. Right. And I think, again, when you see issue 300, you're going to see an interesting mix of creators. And I I think people are going to dig it. You know, and I think that magazine is going to harken back to what heavy metal used to be for everybody. You used to be able to pick up an issue and just get lost in all the different kinds of stories. And along the way, it, it, it kind of got this sameness. It stopped being revolutionary. So mm-hmm. we're going to get it back to that. And that and that's and that's exciting. Do you say it's almost going to be a little dangerous again? I remember parents when I was much younger that if they if they caught you reading the heavy metal, you were going to have a stern talking to. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, we're going back to that. Nice. <laughs> yeah, we're not. We're, we we don't make kids comics. Comics should be a little dangerous anyway, I think, as a rule. Yeah, there comics, could be kids' comics, but, you know. We don't make middle-grade comics. Well, but, just because it's for kids doesn't mean it can't push an envelope or two. So. This, is, this is true. And also, you know, I mean, so when I first discovered heavy metal, I was 13 years old, going to the High School of Art and Design. And, look, teenagers now, I mean, young people are so much more sophisticated <laughs> that a, a 12-year-old... <laughs> should look at heavy metal and there should be no problem with that. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what it's about. I think it's really right. about, okay, are you ready for this? Let's go. But we will definitely have mature content and it's not going to be gratuitous. It's going to be contextual. And that's the thing, right? Like, like let's, to me, heavy metal was always spitting in the face of America's repressed feelings about its own sexuality Mm -hmm. right so we're going to continue to fight that that's great i'm even more excited now (laughs) Uh, there you go um contextual uh, yeah right um do you think do you you think there's a genre yet right Is there a genre yet that you don't think heavy metal's kind of stuck the landing on yet, or do you'd like to see them explore more of? Maybe a genre that it's not all that well known for that you, you'd be interested to try. I mean, within science fiction, fantasy, and horror, there's a lot of possibilities. Like you can you can do a romance fantasy, right? You can do a western horror, right? So I think those three genres still invite and encompass a lot of subgenres. The genre that we don't deal with is superheroes, right? That's that's not our that's not our, our wheelhouse. Other companies have their wheelhouse, and so for me, again, that's also just like an interesting career shift because superheroes is where I've lived, and I love that genre and I see the possibilities. But to be able to totally immerse in these three is really interesting, and it's interesting because my short time at Valiant, I feel like, was a really good transition for them. So when I look at the Valiant universe, I don't think of them as superheroes. I I, I really think of them as that's a multi-genre universe. Yeah. I feel like it's more naturalistic. It's more um, um, action and consequence. 
I feel like that's a, a better explanation of Valiant Comics than I've ever heard. Oh, well, thank, thank you, thank you. Um, and, and I feel that, and I feel that way sincerely. So I think for me, it's that was an interesting transition stage coming to heavy metal instead of like like jumping off a cliff. It's kind of like, okay, you're going to hike down the cliff. You're going to hike down a mountain. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. Yeah. Um, I had something that just completely went out of my head. Oh, come on, man. I Damn. did. I, I had it, and it just went away, and I can't You were remember. on such a roll. I know. Oh, I failed completely. I know that uh, one of the proponents of the relaunch of Heavy Metal has been uh, my partner, Merrick who is also the manager at Bridge City Comics. So she's been very much at the forefront of, like, no, heavy metal. <laughs> heavy yeah, metal. yeah, yeah. So, it's um, great. Yeah, also it's... one of our uh, – a friend, we we actually – when we can see face-to-face again, uh, we play D&D with her, and she's in her – you know, she's – I don't know if she might be saying this. She's in her, her mid-60s now. But when she was stationed overseas, you know, in her – you know, in her 30s, like heavy metal was her jam. It was her connection oh, back man. home and stuff. So I think she's going to be pretty pumped. I'm going to get her a copy of issue 300 also and say, all right. Oh, that's great. And yeah. again, you know, so what that speaks is to responsibility. Um, there are people that have every issue, all <laughs> 299 issues, right? So there's such a responsibility at the company um, with our different responsibilities that, you know, we have to honor that. You know, I think that's the way it is with any company, right? I feel like if you're working at DC Comics, you should be doing stories of the world's greatest superheroes. Mm-hmm. Right? Right? That's it. Right? And, and you're, and you're Marvel, steward and you're stewards of these characters. You have a responsibility. Exactly. Like my thing is if you're working in editorial at DC Comics. You've got to read DC Comics, The New Frontier by Darwin. Right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's not optional reading. That's required reading because it is so much a love letter and an understanding of the magic and wonder of that universe that it will inform how you do your job. Mm-hmm. And if you ever forget, if you ever lose touch with the love, reread it. Right? And so every company, I think, would have those benchmarks to say, this is the best of this company. This is the company spirit. Read this. Yeah? So that's the thing. It's like every company has a promise. And so Heavy Metal has a promise to your, to, to your friends, to those people who have every issue. Like Jimmy Palmiotti. Jimmy Palmiotti has every issue of Heavy Metal. Holy Toledo. <laughs> Can't let Jimmy Palmiotti down, right? <laughs> so it's no. like, okay. Because you'll hear about it. Yeah. yeah exactly. Exactly. Can't, can't do you that. Know, can't and let... you'll never get invited to a Florida Florida cookout ever again. This is what I'm saying. So, you know, that responsibility is taken seriously. So it's like, just got to go in with all guns blazing, man, and reach for the sky. Uh, I remember now. And speaking of okay. legacy, this is we can go back to heavy metal again. But speaking of legacy, uh, a lot of people who listen to this would never forgive me if I didn't ask you. There are rumors of Milestone coming back. Do you know? Yes. Anything? And look, cables make. Yeah, I'm jazzed. Come on, 
Tell us what the hell's going on. I've, how involved do you told, get to be? I've been, t- been told that it's a certainty. Awesome. And I am involved as much as the founders, the living founders, you know, Dennis Cowan, um, Derek Dingle, Michael Davis, you know, Reginald Hudlin is now a big factor now. You know, I'm at their disposal for any kind of counsel support because Milestone gave me a job. Milestone is why I'm in comics, mm-hmm. right? So for me, there is always a spiritual and emotional obligation to that company and the realization that that company has changed lives, right? It has static shock alone. I've spoken to so many people that said that seeing that set me on a new path, seeing that made me go into this artistic career track because that was the first time they saw themselves as heroic, you know? So Milestone was embracing um, characters of different sexual lifestyles, um, disabled characters, um, characters from different ethnic backgrounds, empowered and intelligent women. It was doing all of that back in the 90s. And you've got companies that started doing that five years ago and they think they're advanced. Right. right? And it's like you are two decades behind. Right? So whatever they ask of me, I will do it. Um, but I'm certain it's coming back. Yeah. Would it I mean, I know you, you couldn't say much even with what you do know. Will it still be like a DC imprint or are they going to be kind of allowed to break away a little bit more? Or, would it, or is it better to keep it as a DC imprint? I feel, like, I feel like the nuances of that are still being decided. Um, what is an important distinction, and this is something that a, a, a lot of people have kind of gotten twisted, is that Milestone owns the Dakotaverse characters. You know, and the original company was its own publishing company. DC was the um, distributor. They were the publisher and the distributor, but Milestone was its own company in terms of content creation. I think oh. now what you're going to get is actually a different imprint, but it's going to be an imprint with the same kind of, um, I would say, corporate autonomy. Right. And I think that just comes down to the way DC Comics is structured now. A DC Comics that is owned by AT&T is much less interested in splintering into different divisions and more interested in cohesion. Right. So for Milestone to come back, it would seem that an imprint would be the best way to do it. And so the Earth M um brand and language that was put forth before that would make sense okay cool um and then just a quick random question about milestone that i always wondered and i never got a straight answer from this is and this is a super nerdy comic book collector question let's go why was why was the paper quality different Okay, that I know, is a good I, question. I, I know no, that's, no. <laughs> okay. that's a good one. That's a so, good one. It feels so pedantic to me. <laughs> I believe it was different because it wanted to show off 
the coloring technique, right? But the thing of it is, but the thing of it is, it showed off the coloring technique well, but consumers compare things. So when a consumer looks at a milestone book, they might not necessarily appreciate that perspective. Their perspective might be, why isn't it on the same paper as Wildcats? Right. And if it's not on the same paper as Wildcats, it's not equal to Wildcats. And so that's the thing. It's like there are artistic considerations, but there are other considerations which, you know, it's hard to meet all of them. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that we know that customers are really savvy about now, comic book buyers, trade payback buyers, is value perception. And value perception is connected to production value. It's connected to paper quality, paper weight, printing, binding, all that stuff. Uh, someone wants to feel like whatever the price tag is, this is worth it without question. And mm-hmm. so I would imagine that would be a different approach for the books now. But yeah, I think the old books were really trying to use this paper to highlight the more subtle coloring techniques. And I think you could really see that, especially in the early issues of hardware. Um, and maybe in like the earlier issues of shadow cabinet, things like that. So yeah. So, so as far as I could tell, that was the shadow cabinet. That was one of my, that was one of my favorites. <laughs> Hell yeah! That shadow cabinet was the authority way before there was. Yeah. Authority. Oh my god! I'm gonna go dig up some back issues now. Do it. <laughs> Do it. You won't regret it. No, I know I won't. Yeah, that's exciting. Um. Okay. Uh, Denise, I think you had one more question. You had a question before I went on my nerd path. Oh no, it wasn't a question. It's that um, you answered something earlier, and uh, we've kind of gone away from it. But I had just wanted to point out that that answer to that question was like the most perfect marriage of artist and business person that I've ever seen. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> we, don't, we don't get a lot of business minded, um, artists or, or guests well, in general. So well, I just, but, but I am that bitch. So I'm just like, Oh, look at, look at the way you're awesome. combining all storytelling right. and business at the same time. That we're was speaking, all. We're, thank you. Well, we're speaking the same language and, yeah, you know, um, I think it helps. I think it helps because it allows, it'll, it just allows us to see things from a different perspective, right? It's like, so when you're talking about, let, let's say you talk about poison ivy, right? And you're talking about this like social media movement for poison ivy to have her own series, for poison ivy to be a hero in the global narrative of DC Comics. Um, there's a fan perspective on that, and there is a business perspective on that, right? Um, because we're in a time of changing narrative. You know, one of the things that was revolutionary about Amy Chu's Poison Ivy miniseries is that she reminded us that Poison Ivy is a scientist. And she's been a scientist since her inception, but mm-hmm. most people don't write her from that perspective. They write her from the extreme environmentalist perspective. But they forget that Pamela Isley is a genius scientist. So that's the thing. It's like the perspective that you approach something from, you know, that informs work. And I think that helps us connect to people. So yeah, like, look, I'm a big geek. 
but I do try to see, okay, like what dots are connecting here and, and, and why was this decision made? And I think that, I think talking about those things give us more well-rounded discussions. Uh, I agree. And I think that that's a, that's a good well to try to draw water from because the, the emphasis of Harley Quinn's psychiatric knowledge in Birds of Prey I think this mm-hmm. is like a wonderful layer to her character. It, it it made her smart again instead of just being Joker's bimbo. That's right. That's right. And I love how that character has evolved and how the existence of the new character punchline is a reflection of Harley Quinn's growth because Harley Quinn has totally evolved into the role of being an individual of potency and power and understanding of self-worth. So to have her go up against what she used to be, is interestingly thematic. And it also speaks about, it, it speaks about this cycle, um, just like in our society and how we grow and there are other people who still have to go through the journey that we've gone through, right? So Harley Quinn had a journey. Punchline has a journey. But right now, we're seeing these two characters at two different places. And that's just interesting to me. Like, honestly, I usually don't care about the newest Bat villain. I could usually give a damn. <laughs> but, but, but Punchline is very interesting. I'm going to be keeping my eye on her. Hmm. I like that we have not asked you any specific editorial questions directly, and yet the entire interview you have given us everything that tells us exactly what kind of editor you are. Oh man! Oh yeah. man! Come on! Don't make me blush. Oh it's, man! It's that's, fantastic. That's very. That's very nice of you. Um, and and a, what what uh, Denise picked up on early, like that was in one of your first statements where you talked about the fan experience and the buyer experience at cons, it's like, those are two very different things. Yes, they, they are. Yeah. They are, you know? And, um, you know, I have to say it was really Dwayne McDuffie and Denny O'Neill that drilled into me that editing is a vocation. <clears throat> and um, I always get excited. I love working with creators and I love helping creators be better. And I love when, they have better answers than me. You know, one of the things when I worked with Vita Ayala on Livewire for Valiant, sometimes Vita would have better answers. I'd say, wow, you're right. Let's go with that, right? Which said to me, wow, you really know this character. Mm -hmm. You know, you know this character in ways that have neurons firing in my brain. And that's the thing, right? The editor is not always right. And the editor doesn't have all the answers. Somebody could come along and give a Superman editor an entirely interesting perspective on Superman. So you know what? I never saw it that way. So that's part of the fun. I'm just, yeah, and you... You mentioned both, you know, Dwayne McDuffie and, and Danny O'Neill. And I'm, I'm trying to imagine what that room was like, you know, the, the, the three of you, you know, together in a spot. Jeez. You know, when that happened, so it only happened the once and it happened 
because you know Milestone and DC Comics is a crossover event called Worlds Collide, yep. in yeah. which the Milestone characters um, crossed over with the Superman family character. And so before Worlds Collide, the book started coming out, we actually had a party at the Milestone offices and the DC people came and we were just, you know, just like all chilling out. And it was just kind of a way of getting to know one another, you know, as we kick off into this endeavor. And I think that was the only time for me that the three of us were in the same place at time because it was two different phases of my life. Um, however, when I worked at Milestone, Milestone paid for me to take a comic book writing course at School of Visual Arts that was taught by Denny O'Neill. Oh, my God. Yeah. Very oh, cool. wow. Yeah, yeah. Nice. So that was another – that was my earliest experience with – I call him Aristotle based off of the Aristotle character in the Question series. That's truly how I saw him. I could see that, Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. that makes total sense. Yeah, it, it, it's unfortunately he's, it's his, it's his passing hot. that got me to read, you know, go back and his read his question, the work that he did on the question. Yeah, that book still very much holds up. Yeah, yeah, definitely does. Um, well, we got us getting close to wrapping up here. Okay. Uh, see if we got something in the chat really quick. Let's see what's going on here. Um. Uh. Denise, you want to read another one from Norm or I can? Yeah, yeah. So I know we maybe touched on this a little bit, but let's just make this like a one-shot, like, like quick-fire answer. Okay. Dream artist, dream writer to do a story for heavy metal. Jonathan Nickman. <laughs> but you Straight already up. have that. Yeah. Oh, oh, really? So I got to go for another one? Okay. I'm already getting no, no, no. him for you. <laughs> no, okay, okay. That's true. You're getting you're getting Hickman for us. It's interesting. Four weeks ago, I would have had a different answer, but the last four weeks in comics have been very interesting. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go with mm-hmm. Gail Simone. Okay. Okay. What? Yeah, nice. uh, I would I would love to I would love to have Gail Simone write Tarna write a Tarna short story for us. Hmm. Eight pages. Do whatever the hell you want. Just cut loose. That sounds fine. Do whatever the hell you want. And the artist to go with her? Oh. Yeah. Um, I like Dexter Soy from Batman and the Outsider. Yeah. yeah. I, I think he's pretty amazing. Um, and my other dream would be Otto Schmidt. Oh, yeah. He, Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He really, to me, exemplifies the kind of fashion illustration aesthetic. Mm-hmm. You know, like that kind of whole Andrew Loomis, J.C. Leindecker. He's just got those those beautiful lines. He's been doing these Batgirl and Supergirl illustrations lately on Twitter. That I'm just like, give this dude a Batgirl Supergirl book, <laughs> and I'm the guy that for me, Barbara Gordon will always be Oracle. And that is the hill that I will die on. I'm, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much there also. But if Otto Schmidt does a background Supergirl book, I'm buying it. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> Like fair. straight up. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, hopefully we'll see that happen, you know, in the future. 
I like putting things into the universe. And I was just things. about to say, and I think we've done that. that. So. I, I dig it. I dig it. So we, so, so we have to remember this episode so that when these things start happening, we can always track it back to the source. Yeah. That's what we like to refer to as the geek in the city bum. <laughs> that does happen with scary frequency, but I'm not quite sure why that happens. But. <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> because we're prophets. Duh. <laughs> I mean, like, right. what else could the answer be? Yeah, sure, you go. There you go. Uh, well, Joe, man, it was just fantastic having you on the show. I've been wanting to get you on the show for a while now, and I fully admit that I'm using this pandemic to just, like, no one's going anywhere, so. But That's great. Up. Listen, it was it was great for me to do it. I just, I just love talking with all of you, and we've got to do it again. Yeah, no, uh, maybe – I don't know, maybe sometime in August after issue 300 drops, we can kind of talk about it and get your reactions and see how you feel. Okay, okay. I would. I really look forward to hearing what the three of you think of that book. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, Damn yeah. Good. Joe, thank you so much for popping on, man. It's, a real, it's been a real treat and an honor chatting with you. You're, you're welcome. I had a really great time. We'll do it again. And all of you have a good night. I'm going to go make my wife some tacos. All right, nice. smart. Nice. That's what I made. That's a smart person. Okay. All right, thank you, sir. All right, you take it easy. Take now. care. Yeah. Good night, Joe. Okay. Good night. Bye. How the uh, how about that? That was great. That was a really great conversation. You can yeah. just uh, just give him a topic, give him a question, and let him yeah. run. By the way, Bean, do you know how badly I was tempted when you were like, I was that bitch when you were talking about the mixing of fandom and business. Uh-huh. I was so tempted to say like, you know, Joe, if heavy metal needs some kind of coordinator, uh, one of our co-hosts here is in the market. Oh shit. I know he's, I know where his email is in our inbox. So, <laughs> shit. so I'm not too good for that. Uh- <laughs> so, I'm not either. I, I was also tempted to be like, Joe, also I got an idea, but I, I won't pitch it here because it puts you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, but you should totally pitch it. Um, oh, I'm gonna. And he, you know, he's super, super nice. I think he would have just like given us both whatever, whatever we asked for. <laughs> so I want to mention this. I discovered while we were talking with Joe, uh, since it's also relevant to our listeners as well. If you want an idea of what Stephanie Phillips, who's doing the Tarna story for them, what her writing's like, she has a uh, green tornado or a red tornado story coming up for DC Comics Summer Anthology. Oh, cool. Drawn by Leila Deluca, Del Duca, oh. and oh, uh, nice. with colors by uh, Jordi Belair. So, ooh. Okay. Ooh, there you go. Nice, nice. That's a hell of a team, right? Yeah. Like, oh, I didn't know this was a thing, and now I'm really happy this is a thing. There's like, a, it, if you look at Stephanie Phillips on Twitter, she's got an image uh, that Leila did of uh, Red Tornado. It's like, oh, that's really good. Wow. Nice. I like it. Oh, poor Red Tornado. Never gets enough love, so I'm always happy to see. <laughs> he really love. doesn't. No. I, I feel like if I know who he is and he's a DC or Marvel character, he gets plenty of airtime. Do, uh, Do you know who Red Tornado is? A little bit, yeah. Young oh. Justice. Oh. It's young Justice. Oh, that, yeah. right. right. Yeah. <laughs> I forget about that. Yeah. Um, right. If we have a few minutes, uh, did either of you guys end up reading the the TPB for Black Stars Above? No, no. You shared it with us about a week ago, and I actually only pretty recently 
read it, but I do have some notes. Did they finish that series? They did. Uh, okay. It's five chapters, which I believe they, by which they mean five issues. Yeah, we got a few minutes. If you want to mm-hmm. jump into it, yeah, I haven't had yeah. a chance so, to read it yet. Okay, so I won't spoil anything for you guys, but uh, if you'll recall, um, the book is uh, takes place in um, like the northern wilds of Canada, and the um, the main character is of Michif descent, mm-hmm. um, whom are a uh, a, a sub. I don't know what how you even say it, but she's basically part. First Nations and uh, Trapper, like the French trappers that came over and started, you know, frontiering Canada. Um, and, if, you know, towards the end of the first issue, it takes a little bit of a horror or sci-fi turn in terms of uh, content. Not that they don't hint at it as you work your way through, but it goes from being a story about a young woman who's not living the life she wants and her parents are making decisions for her because times are hard on the frontier. Uh, and then it kind of moves off into a very like HP Lovecraft uh, yeah. turn. And uh, I will just say that after that first issue, because I know you guys all read that, even if you don't mm-hmm. remember it, it goes hard into the genre. It is like poetic and dark and beautiful, but you know, but scary the writing is excellent. the The art is great. I think the art style like really, really does service to the storytelling. I remember liking both of the narrative and the artwork. Yeah, because I, I remember being really, really excited about that potential hard turn into horror. I was I was pretty jazzed for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I picked mm-hmm. up the. I know I picked up the first issue, but I don't know that the rest of them ended up in my box. So I'll make sure to. Well, uh, the world also went to shit. Well, yes, this was like over a year ago. Um, really? Black Stars Above? Yeah, we read that oh. ages ago. Oh, okay. Well, it's hard to tell because a year ago, it was June. So. <laughs> um, but no, but uh, yes, uh, the, the art like really lends itself to the storytelling. And I mean, that it, not to say there isn't like a f- four pages right around like the end of issue three or in issue four that is just, it's just prose uh, in the form of uh, journal entries. Mm. And that's where I will sort of like give my chief complaint. Uh, I can't tell if the year is 1817, like it says uh, in a, like on a wall calendar uh, early on in issue one, or if it's past 1888 which is referenced at a later point in the journals. Mm. Um, so there's like, a, I don't, and I don't know if they were trying to be timey-wimey with it or if maybe there was not enough attention to detail. Um, and this is the copy editor in my brain because that panel where it outlines that it's 1817 also indicates that December 1st was a Thursday and it's not in that year. Uh, and also in that panel, she's reading a book that caught my attention because it is um, the the narrative of uh, oh god now I'm going to forget the name but it's uh, it's an Edgar Allan Poe long form story some guy from Nantucket somebody help me Arthur Arthur Pym the 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 narrative oh, okay. of Arthur Pym from Nantucket um, which is a book that was not published until the 1830s and it's She's reading it 
next to a wall calendar that says 1817. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure that, that none of that was the point. The point was that she's reading uh, an Edgar Allan Poe book that inspired an H.P. Lovecraft story yeah. at the beginning of this series. So it, it's a very good indicator of where this book is going to take you. And that's all I'm going to say because it's... I don't want to give away like any any big reveals or where the story is going to take you, but it was definitely a good read. That's cool. I definitely need some kind of graphic novel to dive into um, in between reading chapters of Mexican Gothic. How are you enjoying that? Uh, pretty good. I it it starts slow, um, but I the the creepy is about to kick in, and and looking back, she's laying the groundwork. For the creepy, but it does start kind of. I mean, looking back at it, it starts like a Victorian Gothic novel, very like oh, and then we wrote letters and mm, oh, mm, there's a lot of that, and you got to remember that it's a it's it's not a Gothic romance. Also, it is a Gothic horror story that just okay. happens to be in Mexico, which also adds another layer to it. So I'm digging it. I'm really digging it. Uh, I am worried that when they inevitably make it a movie, it will be bad. <laughs> depends on who makes it i think depends on who makes it i know it's cliche but they might as well just give it to uh you know Guillermo del Toro. that would be great although he already did his gothic he did crimson peak he may not want to do it again yeah oh and that was not a big hit for him uh commercial, commercial yeah i think TV. it's because it was it was advertised completely wrong yes it was yeah it really was but it was a great movie i love um, it there was sorry this Sidebars. Um, there was a, a thought that that occurred to me when um, we were all talking about Afrofuturism mm-hmm. and why we don't see that as much in, like you were talking about, Latinx stories and Indigenous stories. I I think that's also true of Asian American stories that they haven't focused on the future yet because they're still trying to get the stories about their past and their present out. Right. Well, there's a, there's a lot to work with there. It's, it's yeah. some really meaty stuff. That's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, I mean, if they, if they started to, what do you, what, what, what would you like that to look like? I, I think uh, Japanese American futurism looks completely different than, um, Asian futurism, specifically Japanese futurism. Like, it should not bear the same hallmarks as uh, what we see in science fiction from Japan, because that, like Joe was saying, that's all centered around, largely centered around reactions to Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. Like, you drop atomic bombs on people, and they it drastically changes how they view the world. Right. Um, yes. And I don't think that Asian Americans and Japanese Americans specifically have that same same uh, frame of reference. I think that the more, if we're to look at uh, futurism through the lens of Japanese Americans, you would definitely get reactionary stories dealing with uh, the camps. Mm-hmm. You're right. That's a completely different subset with yeah. with a very with some very specific experiences to yeah. to draw from. Like I, I would think that 
some of the early, it, when we start seeing Latinx futurism, some of the early stories will be a reaction to Operation Wetback. <clears throat> that happened in the 50s, is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, there was deportation in the 20s and 30s, but Operation Wetback was the 50s. Right. And don't forget colonialism. But, you can do a lot with colonialism. Right. Some, so somebody, in this, somebody in this show might be actually writing something, you know, right now about that. Gee, okay. I wonder who that is. That takes place in the future. <laughs> Twist oh! would be, it's me. <laughs> oh, I remember. I remember when you first started working on that. Yeah, I've actually expanded it because, you know, of course I did. I mean, why not? And unfortunately, I kind of think I want it to be a comic, which just sucks. Oh, That's fair. Just because, A, I am learning that I don't like writing novels. I think I mentioned this, that it's hard, that it's not fun. It's not. Uh, And the things I want to do now are more graphic novel leaning still anyway. So that's I I still find that funny because I I consider your storytelling modality to be a little bit more long form. Yeah, like you're 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 heavy on the words, friend. Uh, you've that's, noticed that, that too, have that, you? That's that is <laughs> but changing. You've in also my had a, you've also had a lot of mentorship to sort of uh, move you past that. Yes, uh, uh, for the most part. Uh, well, you now you now you've got Joe in your pocket, and it, <laughs> it is a sci-fi. So it is. I gotta so get him Hickman first, outlet. though. That's the trade-off. Okay, so first, we give him Hickman, and then you'll be like the side salad to the That's... Jonathan Hickman. <laughs> dish that we're going to serve up got it right all right he's he's the he's the uh yeah he's the sirloin steak and i'm the uh i'm the rice pilaf on the side and and oh not a side salad okay no rice pilaf is better uh and then for dessert one beanerita editor oh yeah we're doing it (laughs) cable we don't know what you want out of this cable would you like to be a food or perhaps a cocktail i would like a cocktail at this point all right (laughs) <laughs> well, I think on that we should wrap up the show. Yeah, uh, I think so. Irma was clearly telling us that the yes. show was over. Uh, next week <laughs> is next week is building character. That is correct, unless uh, some, anything has changed. I will confirm, but that was okay. the plan. That'll cool. be great. Um, we are in talks to have Nicola Scott on. I just have to remember to friggin' email her because she did provide me some contact info. So super. No, You're don't not know the when, only person we... behind on emails. I think I think the goal was to line it up with the uh, the new release of Black Magic. Yeah, that, yeah, we'll see. Ish, ish. Oh, and Norm says that no, you are a Caesar salad, sir. Me or Cable? I assume you, but I don't know because of the delay. Right. Uh, well, it's the salad of emperors. Come on. I, no, it's not. Shh. That's not the Caesar's it's named go after. With go with me. All right, then. Stop ruining things with your facts. Well, I'm Caesar Salad. I'm Editor Dessert. And I'm Gin and Tonic. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we will talk with you next week. As always, Ted Wheeler, fucking resign. And donate to the Black Resilience Fund. Yes. All of that. You know how you can do it in a really great way? You can buy the Black is Beautiful beer from Fort George. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you can get some some choice stout and donate. So it's the best of both worlds. Sure. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night.